Oh, we get the chance this morning to rejoice in the promises of our God as we come before Him in the Word now. And so I ask you to turn your attention to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. We'll look at the latter half of this passage and seek the Lord under the question that Abraham himself raises in this text, which is the question, will the judge of the earth do what is just? With that question upon our hearts, let's uh, begin together in our reading of God's word in verse 16 of Genesis chapter 18. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked... Far be that from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Uh, suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then he said, oh, let the Lord not be angry. And I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way, and when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. 
Our Father in heaven, we come before you and we come before your word now, and we ask that you would teach us. We ask that you would clear away from our minds and our hearts the things that would distract us and would even keep us from seeing what it is that you want us to know. And we would ask, Lord, that you would come and you would speak a word that would live within us, that would change us, that would shape us more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's impossible for us to know and to understand what it is that you have for us unless you come. And so in our neediness, we open up our hearts and we open up our hands and we say, gift us with your grace. Come and enlighten our minds and our hearts that we might behold the wonderful things you have for us in this word. We ask it in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. While I was overseas, I was mercifully spared in, in large measure from the, from the spectacle of what so many of you probably drank in in great detail concerning the Senate's judiciary confirmation hearings on the appointment of Judge Brett Kavanaugh to the U.S. Supreme Court. I was in a location in the world that would have made it very hard for me to stay up to date on such things, and also my dawn-to-way-after-dust schedule kept me from, from keeping up with it. But I was able on my day off to simply uh, read up and, and listen uh, into some of the drama, and what a drama it was over the last couple of weeks to see the unfolding of this appointment and all of the legal wrangle that came along with it. Over dinner one night, my translator, who spent 20 years in the U.S. and is quite familiar with our, our political landscape, uh, engaged me in conversation uh, about the hearings. He was up to date on everything that was unfolding, and he wanted to know what I thought about the appointment of Judge Kavanaugh. He wanted me to, to comment on the testimony of Dr. Ford. He wanted me to explore with him the proceedings and talk about the current state of jurisprudence in uh, the United States of America. And I indulged him a little, mostly over points of theological interest behind the matters of political interest. Theological issues that I think are significant, spiritual issues that are pertinent to what it is we see playing out in the drama of these proceedings. And at a certain point in our discussion, I suggested that what we see behind the allegations and behind the issues, which are quite significant, and don't be afraid, I'm not going to dive into them this morning, but significant as those issues and allegations are, there's something maybe more unsettling to me as I consider the nature of what's unfolded, and I referred to it as a disturbing irrationality and a lack of self-control that displayed itself throughout the whole affair. This disturbing irrationality, I argued, was linked to what we might refer to as a loss of public consensus on morality on how the discussion of morality should ensue 
and on the nature and the conception of what justice really is and the long tradition of jurisprudence in the United States of America and even beyond us in in world history. The fact is, it seems that we're having a harder time speaking of justice intelligibly and executing justice fairly, in part because we are lacking what we once had, which was a greater clarity on what is actually right and what is actually wrong, according to the common good. And one note with regards to that arises out of a book that I've been reading with the students at New College Franklin in a class that I get to teach every other year on Christian engagement with culture, a book that's entitled To Change the World, on the irony and the tragedy and even the possibility of Christianity in North America in the late modern era. It's written by a sociologist at the University of Virginia. His name is James Davison Hunter. I commend the book to you. It's a very fascinating read. Hunter argues that when you begin to lose um, a sense for the common good, a sense of the state and absolute categories of right and, and, and wrong, and the fabric of a society begins to be weakened as morality becomes a matter more of, of moral preference uh, rather than a non-negotiable staid reality, then a society becomes more reliant upon partiness. And a society becomes more reliant upon a grasp for power because power rather than the common good and power rather than morality and power rather than human dignity and decency and civility, terms that we're having a hard time defining, much less practicing, power becomes the means by which we try to hold things together. And so everybody wants it because it's the only way that you can hold things together. It's the only way you can change things or make things the way that, they, that you think they ought to be. Now this notion that, that power and morality and justice and civility and dignity and human decency all bound up together are, 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 are core in the introduction of this message in Genesis chapter 18 because the real fact of the matter here in Genesis 18, the real question is a matter of justice. It's a matter of what's right and what's wrong. And is God right in bringing judgment upon Sodom? Or is it it possible that that mercy and and grace could be extended? And and if it is, does that mean that we we subvert justice? Or or is there a way to uphold justice and still give, give mercy? And how do we know when we've actually done those things correctly, well, and we've meted out to the appropriate ends? Now, Abraham is really wrestling with that in the course of Genesis chapter 18. As he hears from God this, this, this testimony that he's going to go down to Sodom and he's going to inquire. The, the language is, is investigate. I'm going to go see what's really going on in Sodom. There's a great outcry. Now you should hear that and not think to yourself, wow, God doesn't know everything. He's got to go down to Sodom and he's got to learn as to whether things are really as bad as he's he's hearing through the grapevine that that it is. No, no, no. I agree with most of the scholars with regards to Genesis 18. I think the best scholarship is correct that what we see here is a presentation of a courtroom drama. 
That, that God is, is doing diligence, as it were. He, he's going to, to investigate uh, whether a charge is appropriate and whether that charge should lead to the punishment of, of judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Just not to, to spoil it for you, but in the next chapter, Sodom and Gomorrah gets judged. Okay, so this, this is an investigation that God himself is going to do, and he, and he entertains a very fascinating idea. <laughs> he says in here, I, I, um, should I tell Abraham this? Should I tell Abraham what I'm about to do? I know I, ju- I just told him and Sarah about the child that's going to be born to them within a year, and there's some really good news <laughs> that has happened. Um, but should I tell them about what it is I'm up to as I leave their tents and I, I put my face down towards Sodom as I go down, should, should I tell Abraham what it is I'm going to do? And, and really what we're seeing God do in the context of this is to invite Abraham to the table to have a dialogue with him about what he's about to do and investigate doing and planning for with regards to Sodom and Gomorrah. This God who's judge of all, all earth who comes with the potential charge against Sodom and Gomorrah, the accused, invites Abraham to the table to consider whether the action of judgment is warranted. How do we know that? Because this long and strange passage of of question and answer, this this dialogical engagement that that Abraham has with the Lord, and he he seems to almost stumble over himself in the discussion. Oh Lord, please please don't be angry with me if I raise this question again. Well, you you who are a judge of all of the earth, you always do what is just. Is it right that you would go down if there are a few righteous in, in the city? This dialogue is Abraham acting like a defense attorney. This is him approaching the bench, as it were. And saying, I'd like to talk with you about the legitimacy in terms of the standards of justice as to whether it would be appropriate to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah if there were some righteous people within it. Now, now think in the back of your mind, why, why is this a concern for, for Abraham? Well, he's got some family down there. Lots there. Lots there with his wife and his family. So this is personal. And as he considers the judgment of Sodom, he also knows that what that may mean is the wiping out of his, own, of his own family, his own kin. And so he approaches the Lord with a kind of legal toe-to-toe that God invites. I'm going to go down there, and, and if the outcry is as, as it is, I'm going to bring this. But Abraham, I'm going to let you in on it. I'm going to dialogue with you about it. And so we see in the context of this passage that there's a case there's a case that needs deliberating. And there's a context in which Abraham is going to be engaging with God over the course of that case as a defense attorney over the standard of justice for which judgment will be brought. And then we see ultimately there's a verdict that's going to be levied. And so it's important that we just look at the passage through that lens. And we understand that that's the nature of what's happening. So we see the case, there's a defense. And we're going to lead to a verdict. Now, we're not going to see that verdict in, in all of its technicolor today with regards to Genesis chapter 18. We'll get into that in the days to come a little bit more. But we will see the verdict that matters most. The verdict that matters most that's hidden, as it were, within and behind and throughout this passage in a variety of ways. So as we look at this case, 
One of the things that I think that we, we see most clearly is that God, as he begins to open up this dialogue with Abraham, rehearses for us the purposes for which he has called Abraham. Maybe you might be asking yourself the question, why would he want Abraham's opinion on this matter anyway? I mean, he's God after all. Shouldn't he just be able to levy judgment according to his own will as the absolute standard for how all goodness and righteousness and justice needs to be executed? Amen and amen. He should. Why does he do this? Because he wants to train Abraham. He wants to teach Abraham something very specific. How do we know that? Well, look, look at the text with me. And notice verses 18 and 19. At the end of verse 17, he asked that question, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And, and if you can, you know, sense it here, he's going to tell Abraham. Just as we often will say, you know, I'm not sure if I should tell you this or, or not. You know, and when we say that, what have we already decided? To tell them. But, but why do we say it that way? To, to, to let them know they're, they're about to be given some really important information. Privileged, maybe private, and it's going to require some gravity, okay? So, so he's going to let him in on it. Why is he going to let him in on it? Verse 18, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all of the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Now, what is that? That's the promises of Genesis chapter 12. We're going back five chapters. And God is saying, listen, I'm going to open up this case for you, and I want to teach you something in relationship with you about judgment and righteousness, because you're going to be instrumental and all of your children are going to be instrumental in being a blessing to all of the world. And then he goes on, verse 19. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him, notice, to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. What does God want for Abraham and what has God chosen Abraham for and his children that they might keep the way of the Lord? How do they keep the way of the Lord? By doing righteousness and justice. By doing righteousness and justice. Well, how do they know how to do righteousness and justice? By God teaching them righteousness and justice. And that's what he's doing. He's training Abraham in that. The whole passage is about the way of the Lord. What is the way of the Lord? And what is justice and what is righteousness? He's inviting Abraham into that discussion. And he says there in verse 20, okay, I'm going to let you in on this, Abraham. God said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, verse 20, that language of outcry is, is an important one. It's, it's the kind of language that I, I believe Bruce Waltke is correct about this, wonderful Old Testament scholar leaning on Robert Alter, one of the best Hebrew scholars um, in the, the previous um, half century, who says that this language of outcry is directly tied to victimization and oppression. Because when you look throughout the scripture in the language of outcry, that something is crying out to the Lord... That which is crying out to the Lord is, is a voice that there are people who are being oppressed. There, are, there is victimization that's taking place. There's injustice that's running rampant. And it is an outcry for this justice to be served and for these victims to be protected and get what it is that is, that is right. Now, why do, we, why do we say that? Well, if you'll remember, the people of Israel were 
were in, in Egypt during the time just previous to the Exodus. And when God comes to redeem them, he says, I have heard your cry. I have heard of your oppression. It's the same language, actually, that we see in Genesis chapter 4. You remember in the very first murder that takes place in the Bible, a grave injustice. That God comes to Cain and he says to Cain, do you know what? The cry of your brother's blood is reaching out to me. I hear it. I hear his blood from the ground. It's crying out to me. It's crying out for, for justice. And so God is going down and he's going to see, even as Ezekiel will tell us later, that this place, this Sodom and Gomorrah, is a place of incredible violence, incredible oppression, incredible marginalization of the weak and the poor. And so as God goes down to investigate, he says to Abraham, I want you to know this is what I'm up to. And this causes Abraham great concern. It troubles Abraham. And we begin to see his defense. And it troubles him in, in part because of, no doubt, the calling that God has placed upon his life. He's to be a man of blessing. He's to be a man who is to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. That includes the Canaanites. That includes those who are in Sodom and Gomorrah. This disaster, this judgment, would be the opposite of a blessing. And so he's wrestling in his own heart. How do, we, how do we give justice and it be a blessing to all families of the earth? And yet we need justice because there's a whole people who are not being blessed because of the injustice that's taking place. So how do we, how do we get, bring blessing to everybody? How, does that, how, do, how do all the families of the earth get, get blessed? I, I'm not seeing how this should work. And we see that Abraham, we're told in verse 22, he stands before the Lord. Now that word stand is literally the idea of bringing a case. The other two angelic witnesses go down to Sodom and Gomorrah, but the Lord stays behind and he talks to Abram. And, we're talking, and Abraham stands before the Lord and he draws near. It's the, it's the idea of approaching a bench. And we see Abraham in the context begin to defend, according to the same law, the preservation of the city rather than its destruction by looking at justice from the other angle. He says in verses 23 to 25, Listen, God, though I know that the wickedness of the nation is terrible and reprehensible and in every way is an affront to your character and how it is that you have made man upright and in your image. But would it be right if there are a few righteous people in the city to give them the same kind of consequence? as it would be to give those who are the unrighteous in the city? In your zeal for justice and righteousness to be levied upon, are you also creating an injustice by giving to those who don't deserve such destruction the same kind of sweeping away into disaster? You see, he's a really good defense attorney because he's turning the tables of justice in his conversation with the Lord, and he's saying, I want you to see it from the other point of view. Instead of looking at the wickedness of the city and the disaster that should come upon it because of its wickedness, what would happen if we viewed justice from the standpoint of the righteous who are in the city rather than those who are the wicked? 
And so he takes the same principle of justice. Notice he's not, he's not diminishing justice. He's not saying, can't we just kind of sweep this on the rug? Can't we wink, wink, just kind of do away with this? No, he's saying, by your same standard, not in any way diminishing justice, would it be possible that your judgment can in some way be stayed or stopped if there's a few righteous people in the city? E.F. Roop on this particular passage says it this way as he's commenting about Abraham. He says, acting as one chosen to promote life, to be a blessing, Abraham proposes that the future of everyone be determined not by those who are wicked in the city, but that the future of everyone be determined by those who may be the righteous in the city. If we can put it this way, his prayer before the Lord, his intercessory pleading before the Lord is, is it possible that the destiny of the city can be based on the righteous few rather than on the wicked who are many? And how many righteous would there need to be? You see, that becomes the dialogue. How much righteousness is needed to protect the city? Is, is 50 enough? What about 45? What about 40? Lord, I don't want to make you angry, but I'm, I'm just trying to figure this out. What, what if, the, if you're saying 40 would be enough, what's the difference between 30 and, and 40 in terms of the, the measurement of righteousness? Could we go down to 30? What about 20? What about 10? Now, if you, can, if you can see what is actually unfolding in the context of this passage, we don't see anger or antagonism from the Lord towards Abram because of this dialogue. In fact, it's welcomed. God's very patient with the whole process. It's almost as if Abraham has stumbled upon something very significant. And each time God says, if there are just a handful of people who are righteous in the city, the whole city can be saved by the presence of the few. It's as if those who are righteous can stand in the place of and protect others who are wicked from the judgment that they rightly deserve. It's a remarkable picture. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is judged? Now here's the problem. If you look at the end of the text, which it ends kind of strangely, verse 33, and the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. There you go. And, you know, got down to 10, and, and it just stops. What happened? Abraham seemed to be on a roll. He'd gotten down to 10. I mean, why not 9? Why not, why not 8? <laughs> why not 7? Why didn't he just continue to get all the way down to, to 1? There was one righteous in the midst of the city. And I think there's, though it's a, a bit of a conjecture, I think it's a godly one. That at this point in the midst of the argument, Abraham has come to the recognition that though his defense is a good one in terms of logic, it's a futile one in terms of the outcome. Because there's not anybody righteous in Sodom. If there was, the city could be saved. 
but there isn't anyone righteous. I think that it's fair to say that Abraham, in the context of this argument, realized that it's not going to work. That there wasn't truly a righteous person anywhere in the context of Sodom. Now you may be asking, as I kind of asked myself this week, why didn't Abraham go down there and, and move in to be, to be the righteous one in, in Sodom as if to, to, to protect the city of Sodom? Well, I, I, think, I think the answer is quite clear when you begin to read the entirety of, of the Bible and understand its teaching about human nature and our character is that Abraham knows that if he'd moved in there, he's not righteous either. That there's no one righteous. In fact, he describes himself in verse 27 as what? A, a man who is nothing but dust and ashes. You know that language of dust and ashes is mortality. And, and ashes is a picture in the scripture of those who are to be penitent because of sin. Though I'm a, I'm a weak, mortal man. In fact, I'm a sinner. I shouldn't even be dialoguing with you about this kind of thing. <laughs> I, who am I to question what it is you're about to do? But it seems like you're, you're asking me to question, so I'm going to question. Though I am, I am dust and ashes. He's already acknowledged it in the context of the passage. And so we see in the midst of the passage here that Abraham has come to exhaust his efforts. That though the logic of his defense is upholding, there is no reality of righteousness there in Sodom. Which is really different than how we tend to think about righteousness. I mean, we tend to measure righteousness, don't we? Comparatively to one another. You know, I'm not as bad as he is, or I'm not as, I'm not as bad as she is. Isn't, isn't Abraham righteous enough? I mean, he's pretty good. Uh, and when we think of, of people like Sodom and, and Gomorrah in the context in Sodom and Gomorrah, we think, well, surely he's a, he's a mark above that. Uh, if you were to go down there, that would have a redemptive influence uh, upon the city. The fact of the matter is that when we begin to read over the scriptures, it gives a much more devastating commentary on the nature of our character than we would like to admit. You see, when we turn to the New Testament, uh, Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 13 that none of us, because of our own righteousness, can anyway stay the hand of God should any calamity or judgment happen upon us. None of us in our own character. He gives the illustration of the tower. The tower that fell on the people in Siloam. And 18 people were died. It was probably headline news in the day of Jesus' own ministry. Something that all the crowd would have known. He said, you remember that tower that, that fell and the 18 people died? Do you think it fell on them because they're bad? And it didn't fall on you because you're good? And then, and then he says to them, No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You'll all likewise perish. Jesus is saying that eternally before God's eyes, those who died in the falling of the tower are no worse than you or I. And so the question kind of rises in your, in your mind is, is, who in your mind are the really bad people? And are you among them? I mean, if we could just simply, just, just for a thought project together, as you were watching the Kavanaugh hearings this week, who, who, was, who was the wicked person? Who, who, was, who was the enemy? Who, who did you like? Who did you not like? 
There may be all kinds of legal and justice reasons for, for why you might side or think in, in one certain way, but you, you didn't see anybody righteous on the screen. You, you never did, according to the, the pages of the Scripture. That everyone, in, in some way, shape, or form, has, has sin to be able to, to bring to the fore. No one is righteous, the Bible says, no, not one. Which means that Nashville and Franklin aren't immune to anything that Sodom and Gomorrah experienced. And if, we, and if we think that we are, then we've not truly taken seriously the depth of how God describes our fallen character in the Scriptures. Romans 3.23 and 6.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. And so the question really in the, behind this text, the question is, who's going to save the city? Who's, who's going to save the city? Is there anybody who can save the city? And when we begin to turn to the pages of the New Testament, we find that there is only one who upholds the standard of righteousness. And his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that he is described in the pages of the New Testament as one who right now at the right hand of the Father in heaven, you know what he's doing? He's living to make intercession for us. What's he doing? He's pleading. He's pleading that God would not exterminate us and give us what it is that we rightfully deserve the justice of Almighty God. He's pleading and interceding on our behalf. We have, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Do you see what this passage is groaning for? This passage is groaning for a righteous man. Someone who will come to redeem the city and save it from the utter cataclysmic destruction that is prophesied and coming for the world in which we live. Do you see, Sodom and Gomorrah and the devastation of the judgment that is given, that is given there, the wiping away of the city, do you know what that's a miniature picture of? The judgment that will come at the end of time. The judgment that will come at the end of time of what the reality the scripture tells us each and every one of us deserve. Unless there's someone in the city that's found to be righteous, God says, I'll preserve it. And you think to yourself, well, how did that work? How does it work? Well, it works this way. That the righteous judgment and justice of God is not compromised. You see, God doesn't just sweep your sin under a rug. He poured out all of the justice and the judgment that you deserve on his own beloved son so that it could be satisfied, so that justice could be served, so that judgment could be quenched, so that the wrath of God could be removed. And it's only when justice has been fully served and the holiness of God is upheld and all of his righteousness that he can freely then give mercy and give grace to those who call upon him in need. Do you see this passage is groaning for what we call the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And Abraham is showing us in his dialogue, in his defense attorney tactics in Genesis chapter 18, what will become the very message of the scripture itself is that there is one righteous and he experiences all judgment on our behalf and thus he saves the city and those who trust in him will go into the new heavens and the new earth and there will be a great new Jerusalem that will come down of heaven who will look like a bride adorned for her husband and there will full justice and full righteousness and absolute grace will be the experience of the world to come. Do you see the conundrum of Genesis chapter 18 is how does Abraham become a blessing to all the families of the earth? He doesn't, but his son does, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thousands of years later, through the lineage of his children, Christ Jesus becomes our Redeemer. Brothers and sisters in Christ, listen, this levels the playing field, doesn't it? You don't just see the bad guys and the good guys in different ways now? There really, at the end of the day, aren't good guys and bad guys. There's bad guys and there's a good guy. And all blessing that you and I will ever experience is found in him. And so I don't know if you, like me, have a tendency to sit on my high horse and sometimes think that I'm above the fray of the fallen world. But this passage lowers me to the right position and humbles me at the foot of the cross. And it teaches me that I have one to hope in. And it's not myself. And it's not you. But it's the Lord Jesus Christ for me and the Lord Jesus Christ for you. And if there ever was a day in the history of our country where such a message might be known, that such a category for justice upheld and such a category for mercy is protected, and that the spirit of a true morality and a common good held fast by the word of God and a display of civility and decency and human dignity because we are all needy and we're all desperate for grace, needs to be known in our context. It's this context. And you know what God has called you to do? That's what he's called you to clarion. That's what he's called you to shout from the rooftops. That the peace that Christ has brought and the justice that has been served is mercy and grace for those who will trust in him. And it's only until then that we can begin to hope to recover a fabric of a community and of society that doesn't have to fight for power. And attack the other side. But becomes a place where we recognize we're all in this together. Needy before an almighty God. Who loves us enough to give his son to draw us into his family. Let us be those people. To not give to the culture war. And to feed and to fuel it. But to instead subvert it. Through the power of the justice that's already been served. And the grace that's made available to you and me. Father in heaven, we would ask that you would do that. That you would waken us to the reality of what it is that you've accomplished. And for the justice that Jesus has served. And for the grace and the mercy that we've received. Humble us in this. And give to us a passion. To see this become the living reality in the time in which we live. The belief and the center for how it is we would operate. 
that the name of Christ might be known over all. Because at the end of the day, Father, it's not the Supreme Court that will judge the earth. It's the Supreme Judge of heaven and earth, even yourself, who will do so. And it's to that day that we look. And it is there where we plead for an advocate. The Lord Jesus, the righteous. We pray it in his holy and righteous name. Amen.